right, and hello everybody. Good day and welcome back to another Merge Worlds story stream. I appreciate everyone coming by. Um, whether you're watching this today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, I still appreciate it. Hello to Miss Ashley and Mr. MT for popping in chat there. Good day. Uh, today we will be continuing our Merge Worlds story series. Hello, Mr. Jim. Um, we will continue with the <clears throat> Seraph group directly from where we left off last time. Uh, I have, again, received some requests this past week or so asking, uh, will we be getting to the other group? Yes, eventually. Uh, but as I've hinted at, there's reasons why uh, we're not doing them right now. We're sticking just with Seraph's group for a little bit. We will see the other group eventually. I promise. Um, but, so today we'll be... Uh, Diving right back into the story, uh, the ending of last episode seemed to have uh, some confusion or concern for some folks, so we'll see how that worked out. Um, I'll do a quick recap as normal, and then we'll jump right into the new stuff. Um, as always, if you enjoy the stream today or whenever it is you're watching it, it would be great if you would not mind clicking that like button, subscribing to the channel. Um, or if you are listening to this on any of the audio podcast sites, such as iTunes or Spotify or wherever, uh, this is available as an audio podcast there as well. It would be super cool if you wouldn't mind giving us the thumbs up or the likes or the five stars or whatever it is on that. <laughs> Definitely helps the channel and helps the podcast uh, get uh, in front of more people. So I appreciate everybody who's been rating and leaving reviews and sharing it and everything, it uh, definitely has made a difference. So thank you very much. Um, okay, so uh, last episode, um, our heroes returned to the city that they first met Red in, where Red and Ward went their own way to take the circlet that they'd gone into the swamps to find back to wherever it was needed to save the young man's soul. The whole reason they went and got it. Ward decided to go with him. Uh, Red had let him know that uh, the two of them still had some things to go through together based on his vision, his abilities to kind of see the future or fate and that kind of thing we talked about. So he left and everyone else kind of decided what they were going to do next. And after figuring out, they decided they were going to head west through the mountains, which was a dangerous journey. Uh, there's only one way through, a pass, which is fraught with multiple different dangers from giants and such just to the uh, environment itself. So they were preparing for that and gathering uh, supplies and such. Uh, later in the evening as they were returning to the home or to the inn that they were staying at, um, an ally met them and brought them back through a sneaky door and let them know that the Oromanians were there and looking for them. So Oromon, the... Uh, enemy empire state that is searching for Dina and who they're trying to avoid and keep her from uh, had caught up to them in the city, was looking for them. So they got their stuff and kind of snuck out quietly at the back and were trying to make their way to the city's temple on the other side of the city uh, with the hopes of getting there to spend the night somewhere safe and they could try to slip out of the city gates the next day. Um, Unfortunately, that was not successful. While going through an area or district that was primarily going to be um, warehouses and storages for the different business and merchants in the city, 
they were set upon by a force of Oromanians. Uh, battle, of course, ensued, and they were starting to get into a point where they were losing, and Mugen had been uh, pretty seriously injured, stabbed, um, when uh, a figure arrived, well, figures, but one main figure with several others that had uh, dove in and began helping him. The figure was clearly a magic user, casting spells, and had sent in his minions to basically help them in the situation. So they followed that person. Uh, the person told them to follow them, and they ran such through the city, through different areas, into a, a small building, into a basement of a home where there was a secret door that led them to a natural underground cavern under the city, where the person who led them there, the mage, magic user, if you will, revealed himself uh, to be a drow elf and provided them some healing-type thing in a bag that they said to use on Mugen's wound. And then when they asked who he was, he introduced himself as Vincentius and said that he had been sent to help them. Uh, now, there have been some people asking, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't Vincentius the drow elf who's the enemy, the, the villain of this tale, the wizard who came back from the future, if you will, great movie, but came back from the future to try to corrupt this game of gods going on and try to affect Seraph's choice. Again, all this is based around the fact that at one day, Seraph is going to be faced with a choice, and his choice is going to determine the fate of the world. And this person from the future has been Seraph's enemy for a very, very long time, uh, setting aside the fact that his name is Vincentius Firemoon, and he's the son of Nylat Firemoon, who was the main villain from the early parts of Merge World, and was also the brother of Rafe Firemoon, who is the father of Deacon, Sarah's best friend who's part of this group. Uh, yeah, that's the guy. So when he popped up, he did introduce himself as Vincentius. He does not give a last name, only Vincentius. Doesn't say his last name is Firemoon. If he even claims to be Vincentius Firemoon, right? Because memories, half drow, half human. He may take his mother's name. We've not really had a lot of that details on him. Uh, what little they know about him, they learned from Deacon from the future. The man in the hat. So my name is Vincentius, and I've been sent to help you, is how he introduced himself. And that's exactly where we're going to start today. So uh, hopefully you guys will uh, like the way this story flows, because people were very confused when he popped up, and uh, I am determined to only make that worse. So let's go. Uh, again, thank you for coming by and giving me the opportunity to share this story. Um, I'm running on 34 years of running D&D. &D. Uh, Merge Worlds being the large majority of that. Um, so it's exciting to get to share this story with people who are interested in this type of tale. If you know anyone else who might be interested, hey, it'd be great if you share it with them too. Always looking to expand the Merged Worlds family. All right, and I believe that we have the sound issues cleared up. Now that we have the new microphone, sound should be infinitely better, and we figured out what was causing the echo effect. I believe I have that corrected as well. So let me know if there is any sound issues, please, and I will try to address them. But I think we're set now. Hopefully I sound much better than I historically have. All right, 
So again, the last thing that we ended with last week was Vincentius saying, my name is Vincentius, he said, and I've been sent to help you. And as usual, we're going to start with a little bit of pre-written reading, and we'll vamp into the story. Well met then, Vincentius, said Seraph. We appreciate your timely intervention. You say you were sent? asked Dina. By who? Which I think is the question everybody had, right? Vincentius smiled. By your parents, in serenity, Seraph. Not directly, of course, but word has been sent through my cousin who lives in the drow community north of Serenity. Word is spread throughout the drow community here on the surface. There are many more of us than most people realize who have turned away from the dark paths of our uh, cousin and chosen to walk on the surface. To be honest, he continued, I hadn't thought much about it when I'd heard about it months ago. Not until a few days ago when word reached me that there were people in town searching for you. I pay well to be kept aware of anything of note that happens in the city, and when I heard your uh, description, I recognized you immediately and began searching for you myself. I'm sorry I didn't find you sooner. Uh, she says, good, good sound. Okay, good deal. Thank you. <laughs> no need to apologize, replied Seraph. You were there when we needed you most, Seraph. Seraph then held out his hand in a, uh, a sign of friendship. Vincentius looked at it for a moment, hesitating, and then slowly shook Seraph's hand. You do not seem too concerned with my heritage, he said. Seraph smiled. Your skin does not dictate the man you are, and you saved the people, the lives of the people that I love. That is all that I need to know. The two men were then interrupted by Deacon. What is this I'm using? Deacon asked. It smells horrible. You'll remember that Deacon was given a little satchel inside, was a jar of some type of paste or salve inside of it. Vincentius had given him that. Vincentius stepped over and crouched down to look at Mugen's wound. It's from a rare mushroom that grows deep below the surface. It has strong restorative properties and will help keep infection from the wound. I wish I could do more, but sadly, I am not a healer by trade. Oh, exclaimed Dina, your friends, the other men who helped us. They were greatly outnumbered. We'll need to help them. There is no need, replied Vincentius calmly. The Ormanians have already destroyed them. Satisfied Mugen's wound was well-dressed, he rose and turned back to them, noticing the shocked look on their faces. I'm so sorry, said Dina, fighting back her tears. Do not worry, my dear, he said. They were dead long before today and felt no pain in their passing. The others looked at each other, hesitating. They were zombies? asked Seraph in disbelief. Of a sort, yes. I am a necromancer, and I did raise them myself. I know that on the surface, necromancy is often frowned upon, but in the Drow community, it is seen as a blessing. The ability to fight and defend our loved ones, even after death, is quite an honor. We would, of course, never take the life of someone in only to, or only to raise it again, of course. Life is still cherished above all else. Deacon frowned. Necromancy is a very difficult form of magic. You must be quite powerful to be able to do all that you did during the battle. Remember, he's a, trained in the ways of magic as well, Deacon's a mage. So. And, he, and, and what Vincentius said is correct. For many people, necromancy is viewed as a, you know, a taboo type of magic that very few people go in. Uh, nine times out of ten, necromancers are the villain 
I mean, not in this situation, obviously, because it's friends. But, I mean, in most situations, uh, necromancy is the cause of a lot of problems. People who can raise the dead for their bidding. Um, not to mention, if a spell goes awry, that's where you get, uh, in these type of worlds, the uh, whole zombie horde, zombie apocalypse type kind of scenario, right? It's not really a disease or an infection per se, but in D&D and fantasy, there's less of a, a, a worry about being bitten by a zombie and being turned into a zombie. It can happen, and it will, but it's not so much the primary fear, right? Um, but it still does spread in kind of the same way. Um, and a lot of times that starts in one of two ways. A necromancer on purpose, creating a zombie and sending it out there to infect people. Um, but even more commonly, it's when a necromancer raises a zombie and loses control of it for whatever reason. Not strong enough to control it with its power. Maybe it was managed to raise one, but just too weak of a mage to control it. Or um, you know, they're, de they're defeated or killed and the zombie is somewhere stasis or held and eventually just kind of breaks off and does its own thing. Um, a lot of the spells controlling zombies, worse or, or undead in general, would disappear or just end once the caster is dead. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the creature raised, a zombie, a skeleton, a white, whatever, uh, would just automatically fall apart. The spells themselves animate those bodies, and unless that spell is ended or the body is destroyed, it's still going to move around and do stuff. And that's where a lot of the zombie wandering zombie hordes and problems kind of pop up. A lot of times this is really more of an accident from a necromancer who can't control them. Um, you'll see a lot of the same type of thing when it comes to demons, right? The whole type of thing. Somebody has the, draws the circle of runes on the ground and then they summon a demon and then they want it to do what it wants, whether it's to answer questions or cast a spell or whatever, and they keep it locked inside that circle. But if they make even the tiniest mistake, in the drawing or the runes, that circle no longer will bound that demon. The demon may just completely destroy them, right? Or worse, become free to roam the mortal plane. Um, that's how a lot of demons end up on the mortal prime material plane, is what it's normally known as, or the mortal plane. Because one was brought in and not controlled, <clears throat> and if it's really powerful, it might even bring in more after it, which we've seen situations of that in previous Merged Worlds episodes. Thank you very much, Terry. You have a good one, buddy. So when Deacon says, hey, you must be pretty powerful, you had several undead there, right? Because he had a group of them, and they attacked and were fighting for him. and Which kind of explains why they were moving kind of, they weren't moving as fluidly as you'd expect a regular person to move. Deacon and Seraph both picked up the smell of decay as they passed, but they really have time to deal with it. It was um, obvious from that. But then he was able... Vincentius to cast other spells, right? He was doing other spells at that time period. So he was doing that and still controlling multiple undead creatures. So that shows that he is a spellcaster of experience and power. And Deacon would recognize that more than the average person, because most people don't know maybe that that's an achievement to be able to do that. Um, and another big thing about not just drow, but elves in general, a lot of times it's very hard to tell how old he is, right? He could be 20 years old, he could be 200 years old. They age so slowly, until they get really old, or unless they're really, like, baby toddler young, it's difficult to know how long someone might be practicing. He could have been a necromancer for several hundred years at this point. But he says, hey, Deacon, Deacon says, hey, you must be pretty powerful to be able to do everything you did at once in the battle there. 
And Vincentius bows to the compliment. I'm flattered. Thank you. I'm not one to boast, but I do have certain skills of which I am proud. So he takes that as a compliment. Well, thank you. I appreciate you noticing that. Will Mugen be okay? Dina asked Deacon, trying to change the uncomfortable topic. I think so, Deacon replied. It's bad, and he lost a lot of blood, but he is much sturdier than most folks. If the salve works as Vincentius says, he should be okay, but he'll be weak for quite a while, though, and we shouldn't move him roughly. He's definitely in no shape to fight. You'll be safe in this cavern for the time being, said Vincentius. This cave is warded, and you'll be undetectable here. The Aromanians won't stop searching for you, though, so we'll need to find a way to get you out of the city. We intended to head west, replied Seraph. And with Ormon here, it means the south is definitely unsafe. Remember, the south was kind of the thing they were torn between. Do we go west or south? South, they could get to the central sea, but that also means, you know, where they get a boat, maybe get to allies or help, but Ormon's also travel the sea. And very likely, Ormon's here, that that's, means it, a less likely safe path, whereas Ormon being to the, uh, to the, I'm sorry, they're going to the east, not the west, they're going to the east. With Ormon being to the west of where they are, going to the east is the direction that they're heading, further away from Ormon at this point. Even though they want to get home, all the other directions are either dangerous or leading towards Ormon. East, mused Vincentius in thought. Through the mountains, then. I tell you, I, I may know a way to get you out of the city and a good distance closer to them without your being found. It'll take a bit of arranging, but if you're willing to accept my assistance further, I'm willing to try. Of course, replied Seraph. Any assistance you could provide would be greatly appreciated. Excellent, said Vincentius. Then I shall get to work. It may take a day or two to get everything in order. You'll be safe here, and it will give your small friend time to heal some. I shall return as soon as possible. With a bow, Vincentius excused himself and exited through one of the other passages. Remember, they came in one side and there were a couple other excerpts leaving out of this small, round, natural cavern. After a, moment, after a few moments, Seraph could no longer hear the drow's light footsteps any longer. Elves walk very quietly, drow even more so, but Seraph's hearing is going to be able to hear him for a little bit. Turning to Deacon, he asked, What do you think? Deacon's face looked dour. I'm not sure yet. Clearly he has no allegiance to Oromon, and he's done nothing to warrant any unusual suspicion. His story rings true as well, because they know there's a, a drow community north of Serenity that is allies with Serenity. It exists because Mercy and friends went up there and helped lead them down there, and they've been, for at this point, of several years, an ally in trading uh, with Serenity. They've, Serenity's helped them build into a community. Um, so it totally would make sense that Draven and friends might reach out to allies and say, hey, if my son's missing, kids are missing, out there being dangerous, if you can do that kind of stuff. Now, we know, of course, from the story, his parents are staying out of it because of what they know. But Seraph doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know anything. With Even uh, artists in their group, they know about the game now. They know about everything and Seraph's decision and all that. But Seraph and his group are still completely ignorant of everything that's the bigger picture of this. They just know that they're trying to save Dina because Ormond's trying to take her. So, to them, right, it would make sense our parents might send out word because they were worried he'd come after himself, but maybe he didn't. They respected that, but maybe they would send word out to the dwarves and the elves and the drow and community that they know to see if they could get some help 
getting their, their kids back, right? Um, but he says, the story rings true. The northern drow have been allies of serenity for years. But, asked Seraph, prodding deeper. There's something about him, replied Deacon. Maybe it's just his dark profession or the convenience of his arrival. Something just doesn't feel right. And I swear, something about him seems so familiar. Seraph nodded. My thoughts as well. We will accept his help and give him a chance to prove his intentions. He definitely deserves that opportunity. But we will watch and listen. There's too much at stake here to automatically assume everyone can be an ally. So, they're like, hey, great, you're a friend. Thank you. We appreciate your help. And they're like, okay, we got to watch this guy. We're not completely convinced. I mean, he hasn't done anything except save our lives, right? He, he saved our lives and decimated the forces of the Oromanians. What would he gain from that if he was, if he was with the Oromanians, right? If he was helping the Oromanians, he'd be helping them catch her because that's what they want. So clearly he's not in league with the Oromanians. That doesn't necessarily mean he's a complete friend. But everything he says, there's enough information in there to be like, well, yeah, we could totally see how that's possible. And you got to imagine that both of them are in the back of their mind. They're like, listen, we know Drower aren't all evil. But we don't know this one specifically. And so there's a little bit of that bias in the back of their mind that they're trying to not weigh on their decision. But it's not always easy to ignore that. Um, Especially when you've got a situation where you're like, well, 99% of this group of people have always killed everyone. Um, so it's one of those things where you're like, hmm, must think. So Vincentius is left. They're there. They had supplies with them, right? They'd gotten um, the, the, at the end that he'd supplied them with food and things that they would need. So they have plenty to be okay down there. It's big enough that they can light a small fire without worrying about you know, smoke inhalation and stuff. It's a big enough cavern that that's not a super concern as long as they don't leave a raging fire going at all times. And I'd say that there's some supplies in there in the cavern that were probably set up there by Vincentius. Um, the cavern looks, I mean, there's a secret door to get in here. It looked, and it's warded, right? He said that. So this was meant to be a place to escape to. So you'd assume there'd be some supplies there uh, that would let them get started. And, and in fact, there were. So they kind of set up camp and, and spend some time talking about it, figuring out what to do next, planning things, and and more importantly, seeing that Mugen gets some rest and heals. So it takes two days for Vincentius to return, right? He said it could, right? And right now, as far as they know, he's working on their behalf above ground where they really can't be right now. He doesn't know what's up with the Oromanians as well. But eventually, two days later, Vincentius returns. And does confirm one of their fears. Ormon has people all over the city. He said his, his connection of people have let him know that they're all over looking for any sign of any of them. Now, they're not looking for Vincentius. When he jumped in and helped, he was cloaked. They didn't know who or what he was until after they helped. Um, and he wasn't wearing his regular civvy clothes, if you will. Uh, his, so, you know, and he's not... And he explains this. He explains his situation in the city. I've been here a while now. I'm known by some, but due to the nature of my heritage and the biasness of how many people would feel, I'm, I keep to myself somewhat. I have some dealings, but I'm not out there walking around the streets every day waving hi at everybody, right? This is a city that's more willing to accept 
different races and things of that nature. I, I set that up well earlier. That's one of the reasons Seraph and them felt comfortable coming in here. Because he looks odd. Mugen looks odd. You know what I mean? They wanted a place where they wouldn't stand out as much. Um, in a city that's humans and elves and goblins and multitudes of other races. It's a neutral city as long as you're not there to cause problems. We'll discuss that. Vincentius the same way. As long as he's not causing problems, he moves in, gets himself a little house, whatever the case may be, starts doing whatever business he's doing. He doesn't get too deep into it, being a necromancer. But I do want to clarify, just because you're a necromancer doesn't necessarily mean you can't cast other spells. Okay? Um, depending on your role-playing game that you play, um, if we look at some of the classic older Dungeons & Dragons and such, there were different types of uh, mages, if you will. Um, you had your specialists, which are ones that choose a specific type of spell and only do that. And very often they got perks and bonuses for using those spells, but negatives if they tried to use anything else. Then you have your traditional mage, which learns the spells that they want or that they can as they grow in experience and power. Um, so while he has primarily enough necromancy spells that he himself considers himself a necromancer, he does have some other spells as well. And surprisingly, a lot of people may not think, some of the healing-type spells that are out there fall under the necromancy classification. Healing a wound is not much different than reanimating a wound. It's, uh, you know, it's still... That's why one reason healing falls under clerics and not so much under mage power. It's more of a god-given ability. But it still can be considered a necromancy type of spell. So there are some beneficial healing type things at higher powers that necromancers have access to. Doesn't necessarily mean that all necromancy spells are evil spells. And he's explained that in the drow community, the dead sometimes are chosen to be raised to fight on and protect loved ones and family. You could see that. Even in our own culture, there's situations where, you know, the, that's the type of thing, right? Uh, let's take a jump back to terracotta warriors, that type of thing. Emperor dies, soldiers are killed to go with him to protect him after death. That's seen as a huge honor. That's not a bad thing. This is just adding some magic into that to do a little bit further, right? So when he talks about these things, it's not necessarily, it's taken as, okay, well, how are you using this that's not evil? And that's what the heroes here in this group are looking for. When he talks about stuff, what could you be doing that's not bad? So far, he's been doing okay. So again, he says that there's they're watching all the gates. There's people all over the city that are looking for them. They're not going to be able to get through the gates because those are just being scrutinized. Because, of course, Ormond needs, knows they got to get out of there, too. And there's only three gates and ways out of the city. One in the human, one in the goblin, and one in the uh, elven section of the city. So... Vincentius says, here's the other option that we have. This is what I have for you if you want to try it. Vincentius is made aware of an old tunnel system that's underneath the goblin section of the city. It's not the sewers. It runs kind of around the sewers, but it's not part of the sewer system, which does exist as well. It is separate. Um, it has been there since before the merge and was originally meant to be a way to sneak in contraband goods into the Goblin City back when it was just a Goblin City. Because uh, even before the merge, the Goblin City was very trade-oriented. That was its, its the type of city it was. That's how they managed to bring the elves and humans in allied ship in line with them by saying, hey, trading, we can make way more profit and way more success working together than working against each other like we had been. So the Goblins ones that kind of bartered that truth between the three factions. 
He says, this old tunnel system was used by way of the goblins to sneak stuff into the city even before the merge happened. Now, it hasn't been used in a while. They stopped using it soon after the merge. It had been sealed up. And what little he knew about it is that there had been tales of some type of dangerous creatures or evil or something under there that was so dangerous the goblins decided to stop using it. Now the tunnels themselves led west. Or not west, east. I keep saying it the wrong way. East, the direction that they're wanting to go. And it would come out several miles out of the city, uh, near a, a, not too far from a town named Bannerhelm. And I mentioned there are several villages and towns between the city and before you get to that mountain range where that only has the one pass to get through it. Bannerhelm is one of those villages. It comes out uh, in an area not far from Bannerhelm, and I do have a business associate in Bannerhelm that would likely be able to help you further once we get you there. Okay? So if you go through these tunnels, you get to bypass everything, but supposedly there's some dangerous stuff down there that the goblins didn't want to mess with. Now, he's made arrangements for them to get access to this tunnel to try to escape if they want to. He says this was not cheap. And he's not trying to say, hey, you owe me money, but he's, he's trying to show them how this was, a, this was expensive. This cost a lot to make this arrangement because most people aren't even supposed to know that this exists. In fact, the goblins were kind of surprised when I came to them about it, how I would have knowledge of this. But again, I pay well to know much. So again, it wasn't cheap, but if there's one thing goblins are good for, they'll do just about anything if you can get the right price. And so he made arrangements for them to get them in. Now, if they accept this help, it's, it's basically hidden underneath of a large smithy in the goblin town. He's like, we'll have to get over there, and I'll have to get you into it. And then from there, I made arrangements for some supplies for you to help you. I know you've got some there, but you've also used up two days' worth living in this cave. But I'm going to get you some other supplies. I've made arrangements to get us through. And they're going to be like, us? You plan on coming with us? And he's like, yes, I'm going to have to. Um, from what I've learned, it's um, more like a maze of tunnels in there the further you get out. Multiple exits, although many of them unknown. The primary exit was near Bannerhelm, which Bannerhelm was a goblin town. So it's still, while it's got mixed people, it's still primarily goblins that live there. He says, with his experience and all the years he spent living underground, knowing the direction and which, where to go down in here, uh, they're going to need his help. Because there are no maps. He's going to have to figure it out as he goes. And sure enough, being a drow, naturally knowing what direction underground is one of those things that drows and some dark dwarves and stuff have that ability. It's like, I know north underground, even though I don't have a compass, there's nothing to show me where north is. Um, he's like, so I can get you through. Plus, once we get to Bannerhelm, it's nothing for me to just come riding back on the road back to the city, right? They're not looking for me. So, I mean, it's not a problem at all. I can help you get through there. We'll get you over to Bannerhelm, and that's then maybe we'll get you some horses, because he doesn't know their original plan that we're going to walk. But we'll get you supplies and stuff, and then we can get you on the road heading east as far as you, you know, as quickly as we can to get you away from Oromon. So it sounds like a really good idea, but he does specifically say, I don't know what they're scared of. And talking to the few that even remember this from 20 plus years ago, because it's been over 20 years since the merge, remember. 
He's like, nobody no, seems to know what it is that was down there, only that it was enough that the goblins, as a force, decided not to go down there and do something about it. He goes, but I think that, you know, together, if we can get through there, sneak away, 20 years ago, if there was some type of wild creature that popped up in there, maybe we'd be dead by then. You know, and knowing enough about you folks as I do, you're a little bit better than a goblin group walking down there. With my assistance, we should have no problem getting through. At least that's his hope. And he's offering that as an option. If, if they don't like that, he'll see if he can find another way. But right now, he's saying right now, that's the, uh, the only really option that he's been able to find, you know, quickly. So, after some talking and finding out what information they know, they agree, okay, yeah, well, we'll do that. That makes sense. It's a way out of the city. It's underground. Ormond can still be searching for us here. And Vincentius even makes a comment. I can, you know, I, I've made arrangements where uh, maybe there will be sightings of you in the city even after we're gone. I have people, allies, people who work for me that I've paid. So, so word will get to the Oromanians of sightings within the city to keep their attention here, at least for a time, to give you more time to get away. This I can do for you. You know, and he, he, he offers the reason why. They don't even have to ask. He's like, what your family and kingdom of serenity has done for my people over there is more than any other country, any other group has ever done. I mean, there's an actual drow community that's accepted and has allies with humans and whatever over there because your kingdom and family did that. So when your parents asked for help and word went out, we're happy to do that. We're, you know, we drow. Good friends. Happy to help you out that way. So they agree. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and we'll do that. He's like, excellent. I have some supplies. If you'll follow me, we'll take you to this, uh, get you to the surface again. So they follow him out the same tunnel he went out last time. They travel for a little ways, you know, bendy, twisty, turny, because they're under the city, until again they come to a, a, a rough and crudely cut staircase in the stone that they're able to go on up, and again they end up coming into a home through a secret door. Wall opens, they're in the basement of a home, Going up the stairs, they find themselves in a much nicer home. Not huge. I mean, I'm not talking like a mansion or anything, but a, a very well-kept, nicely furnished home. Um, you could definitely tell that it's... Uh, when Vincentia says, this is my home, this is where I live, you know, he's used to living in a certain way, right? Which, again, would be understandable, right? From what we know about Vincentius, he grew up basically as nobility, you know? Um... Uh, his father was seen as, as a god, godlike being, and when he, his mother married to him, that basically made him the son of a god kind of thing. So, and then when powerful him came from the future, with the plans and knowledge that he had, you can understand, hey, okay, you're, he's noble-born, so he's living that way in this small home. It's hard for them to say, you know, oh, you've lived here for a week, or you've lived here for ten years. It's not really going to be able to tell just from seeing it, only that the home does look live, uh, lived in, and it does look well-furnished and well-kept. Now, the hardest thing of this whole situation, I mean, not counting whatever might be down there, but the first hard thing that they have to overcome is they have to get across the city to the Goblin City. Um, because Vincentius lives in the human section. Toleration only goes so far. And he was not comfortable, he's straight up, I was not comfortable trying to purchase a home in the elven section. Uh, the my elven brothers and sisters over there, a uh, little less likely to look past my heritage uh, than the humans and the goblins, they could care less. But the humans specifically. 
So, so we got to get over there. Now they're going to be looking for you four. All right? And you guys do make up an interesting looking group. So he says, what I'm recommending is you split up. Seraph and Deacon, or sorry, Seraph and Dina will go first, right? He's like, I got you guys some cloaks, put them over there. We're going to go in the middle of the day when it's busy and the streets are packed. The two of you are going to make your way over there. I'm going to give you a map. I'm going to show you exactly where you need to go. The two of you will go. Keep hood up, hide that bright white hair of yours. Cover her face and do what you can to get over there by sticking to the crowds, right? Don't try to take sneaky, off-handed ways. Be out in the open. He goes, I will come afterwards with Deacon and Mugen because Mugen is still moving a little slow. He's still pretty hurt, right? If you ever seen it's, it's not like in the movies. He got hurt and five minutes later flexed and the bullet popped out. It's not like that. He's hurt. He's healing and the salve is making good, good work. So he's able to walk. He has some strength, but his arm is still very stiff. And at this point, Deacon's even wrapped it up in a bit of a sling. So he's, he's kind of got one arm up. So he's not really able to use that arm at this point. He's got to let that uh, shoulder slash chest, because right between the shoulder meets the chest. Now, luckily, he didn't hit anything vital. And he smells pretty bad, because that salve is stinky, but it is helping. Friends don't like the idea of splitting up, but it does make sense to do so. They're looking for a group. The tall guy with white hair, a girl, a young man, and a, well, gully dwarf. Even though he's only half gully dwarf, anybody seeing him is usually going to consider him a gully dwarf before they consider him a gnome. That stands out. So splitting up makes sense. So sure enough, everybody you know, gets ready to go. They gather up the supplies that Vincentius has already arranged for them to have in the home, some additional foods and things they need. Put on the new cloaks that they look, look different than what they normally wear. Cover themselves up, pull up their hoods, and Seraph and Dina make their way out into the streets. So they're kind of fighting through the throngs of people. It's a busy day. It's a market day kind of thing. So uh, whether it's a slow going, it's also very easy to get lost in that crowd. And not everyone, you know, having their hoods up and such isn't that unusual. It doesn't make them stand out in any way. Many people might do so. And so they're traveling and they kind of fight their way through the crowds to get there. It takes them a little while, but they manage to make their way to where Vincentius, man, I stumble on that name, uh, directed them to go, okay? So where he said was, hey, there's a goblin blacksmith, smithy, tunnels hidden underneath of it. Now, I don't mean there's a blacksmith there. It's a smithy. It's a large smithy where multiple blacksmiths work. Right, so it's it's a large facility. It's not like a factory or anything, but there's probably four or five. It's being run, and a lot of goods come out of there. This is for things where a kingdom says, "Hey, we need 500 swords." That's the you know this is where that makes that kind of thing. Instead of just one guy trying to hammer them out themselves, they got goblins and probably maybe even some other races in there hammering away, making large orders. We need a thousand nails. We need whatever the case may be. They're working in bulk stuff. Um, that's the kind of thing that this smithy is working for. They make it across the street from it where they kind of hang out in a little shadowy area where they're watching where they're supposed to meet their friend. About 30 minutes later, Vincentius, uh, Deacon, and Mugen show up. And Mugen's already looking a little more pale because just the struggle of up and moving around. It's the first real walking he's done in two days since he was hurt. But once they've all gathered and they take some time to look around, Vincentius feels comfortable that they've not been followed or noticed. He leads them across the street and into the smithy. Okay. Pull that up here. All right. 
They get inside the smithy, and again, you hear the ring of multiple hammers going on. There's probably some people there working on business and stuff, counting stuff. There's multiple goblins. Primarily, it's goblins and orcs working here. Although, they do see there's one human hammering something out on one side of the building. Um, so, they walk into this. And it only takes a minute before the goblin they're looking for, a goblin named Gek, comes walking up to them. Now, Gek has got a little bit of weight on him, but clearly, he's a smithy by, smith by trade. He's got the brawn of it, the muscle. He's got the the very worn hands and scratches. He looks like he's probably in, for Goblin's, 50s or 60s. Um, but he runs the place. So he's also dressed a little bit nicer now. But you could tell he was a smith at one point. Vincent Vincentius introduces him. Says, this is Gek. This is his smithy. Uh, Gek is going to be helping us out today. And Gek kind of looks at them all and then looks at Vincentius and kind of raises an eyebrow like, you sure you want to help them? Vincentius just nods and Gek's like, okay, follow me. And leads them kind of to the back. The whole time talking about nonsense. Yes, and we can have a thousand nails. It's super easy, blah, 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 blah. Did you need horseshoes? I'm sure we can do horseshoes too. And just talking about sales stuff, trying not to draw attention to the fact that you know there's just this weird group following him towards the door. Making it sound like they're there for business. He leads them through a door in the... The side that leads them into the building through the shop and where different things are hanging up, weapons and armor, primarily different tools and shovels and all that stuff, into another door in the back, which is clearly a storage room. To the far side of that is stairs going down, and they go down to find that there's a larger, even storage room underground, where there's just racks of, um, you know, boxes and things or crates of goods and even just crates of ore, probably stacks of different types of ore and base materials they would need for what they do, coal and all that kind of stuff. A lot of it would be stored upstairs, but anything valuable, right, if they got silver or something, a crate of silver ore, it's going to be down here where it's going to be harder for somebody to get into. You want that just sitting upstairs. Leads them through these crates to the shelves and stuff, it's like a little warehouse kind of thing underground to the very, very back behind a big stack of what look like barrels. You kind of have to duck in around behind them. And they see that this wall is particularly bricked. Right? A lot of the wall looks carved, and maybe some type of brickwork in there, but this one definitely looks different colored. It's a like a whole new wall that's been put there 20 years ago, because that's what happened. In order to make sure nothing came through, they basically double-bricked that wall and then put a bunch of storage stuff heavy in front of it, saying, okay, this is no longer our problem. They didn't lock a door... They had no intention of ever going back in there. Now, though, when they arrive, they can see that a bunch of the bricks have been broken out. And there's a space enough for people to kind of squeeze through. Not a huge space, but enough. And so they... Ooh, let me get to the right spot here. There we go. Take it in, take it in. Now, Gek is quite clear to them. Because once you go in here, my people are going to brick this back up again. Okay? There's no way back through here. What you paid me for was, was access to this tunnel. You're about to have it. You'll have to find your own way out of there, for better or for worse. Once you go through there, we're done. Dina asks, what's in there? What, what is it that we're going we're gonna to run into? And Gek shrugs his shoulders and says, honestly, I don't know. He says, after the merge, people didn't come through. You know, at first, it was like, well, the merge just happened. Okay, the world's in chaos. Now we're half, we're one-third human, one-third elf, one-third goblin city. We're all shoved together here, and that took a bit of time to sort out. And they're like, okay, well, shipments of what were contraband, basically they snuck stuff in underground, 
materials so they didn't have to pay taxes and tariffs to the goblin merchants and such. The merchants and stuff were busy, so was everybody else with the merge. But they started saying, okay, well, nothing's come through in a few weeks. Well, maybe the merge messed with that. We'll give it some time. So they sent someone overground to find the other end of the tunnel. They get there. Sure enough, that entrance to the tunnel is still over there next to Bannerhelm. They're like, okay, Bannerhelm came through with us. And here's the other entrance. They've talked to some of the goblins there. Did anybody go in the entrance? And they're like, yeah, some people have gone through there. They never came out the other side. That was obviously concerning. They had materials we wanted. Materials went in there with them. So we sent a group of goblins down to see if we could find out what happened. They never came back. Wait a little while. No sign. Nothing. Nobody came out the other end. We sent in a larger group. All right, Better armed. A bit more trained. Of all of them, only one managed to make it back this way. And when he arrived, barely alive. Body cut clawed bite marks, scratches all over him. The man was just raving. He was sick, of course, infected and everything. He'd somehow made it back. I don't know how far he'd made it in. But all he gets is screaming about claws in the dark. Claws in the dark. He died very soon after that from the wounds. There was just no healing him. He was so beat up. Once that came through, I was like, we were not willing to risk any more people. There were other ways of getting goods. And to be honest, with everything else going on between the elves, the humans, and the goblins at that time... We had bigger problems to deal with, so we just bricked this up and everything for the worked out for the better and trade deals and such that we really didn't need it any longer. At least not this way. Hmm. This isn't good news to them. It sounds like a good time. Exactly. It sounds exactly like a good time. And they're not happy to hear this either. You know, knowledge is power. Uh, but not having it there, they still don't really have a lot of other options. So they were like, okay, we're still going to go in. They begin to walk, go to the door to go in, and Vincentius stops, and he turns back, and he comes back to Gek, and he kind of crouches down, so he's right eye-to-eye with Gek, because Gek is pretty brawny, but you know, he's short. He's a goblin. Goblins are short, in case you didn't know that. And he just looks him straight at him, and he's like, you and I have made this bargain, this deal, and you've been paid well for that. If I find out that anyone anywhere somehow finds out about this deal I don't care who it was or who told them I'm coming to find you you specifically and you are going to pay for that and you know very well that the punishments I can deal out to you will have, will have an effect long after death if a goblin who's green could go pale Gek does and it's the first time the friends are like, ooh, Vincentius has got some kick to him. Just stand, and Gek's like, you don't have to worry about it. Work the deal out. You mean, because, you know, the intention of this is for him to go through and come back, right? <laughs> Vincentius isn't leaving permanently, according to what, what he said and what everybody else thinks, right? I'm coming back. Gex seems to feel the same way, that he's going to see Vincentius again. He knows very well not to cross him. And Seraph and friends see that. There's a relationship here. He's obviously dealt with Gek in the past. Nodding satisfied with the answers he received, Vincentius stands back up and goes over to join the friends, and they make their way into the tunnel. Now, it's not going to be bricked up immediately. It's not like the second they get in there, people show up with bricks and start closing it. It's going to happen probably late that night after this thing closes, and they can do that kind of more in secret. It's still a tunnel they want to keep hidden, 
you know, in case they do want to deal with it in the future or need it for some reason. But once they squeeze through this hole, of course they light up some torches, right? Dina and Deacon can't see without light, right? Mugen has limited in-provision. Seraph has very good in-provision, but all of them pale in comparison to Vincentia. Uh, a drow have the best in-provision of anything. That's a regular humanoid race. There are creatures that are different. But humanoids and stuff, drow have got in-provision better than anybody else. One of the reasons he's going to be a benefit here. It's useless to him right now because they got to walk around with torches. But in a pinch, it's still handy to have. But they do light a couple of torches. And of course, Dina carries one of them and Mugen is also carrying a torch. Mugen is doing so because at this point, he's just not capable of fighting. He's got one arm in a sling. The other hand is holding a torch. This way I can benefit to free up the hands of the other three in case they need to cast spells or melee or whatever. Okay? Now, Vincentius doesn't have a staff. I want to start off with that. Clear that out of the air. He's not walking around with a staff of some kind. He doesn't have a sword on him. He has a very visible dagger on his belt, which is not unusual. A lot of knives, you know, carrying a knife or a dagger is an um, emergency. Very common for a, a, a mage to use. But he doesn't walk around with a staff in any way. Okay? A lot of people uh, wonder about that. What type of weapons does he use? Well, at this point, you don't know other than there's a dagger on his belt, if he even uses any at all. But he does not have a staff, so his hands are open able to cast spells if he needs to, but there's nothing that would lead anyone to believe that he's going to be helping a melee combat. That's why I'm mentioning this, right? There's nothing like even he's going to, even you look at uh, Petal, right? She could bonk somebody with her quarterstaff. Uh, Artis, or Artemis had a whip, even though she had a, she had a bonk stick and she had a whip. Um, these were squishy characters, mages and clerics, who still had a melee. He shows nothing that would give away if he has any ability to melee combat. Whether he does or not, they don't know. But his hands are free in order to cast spells. He does not carry a torch. Party order in this situation is going to be Seraph at the front. With Vincentius directly behind him. Because they are walking with light on. Infravision's not as much of a prior, prior, priority. And Seraph's hearing is still better than Vincentius. Um... That's from the vampire blood in him. Uh, where does that put him in party order? Oh, excellent. That's, that's what I'm touching on. So party order is going to be Seraph in the front with Vincentius right behind him. Because in a pinch, you need to cast a big spell, he wants him up close. Right? So that means it's going to put Vincentius between Seraph and Dina. Then we're putting Mugen next. It's obviously not their normal party order because he can't fight right now. With Deacon in the rear. Deacon usually is in the rear because he's the cleanup fighter. And if he has to cast a spell, he does it from the back. Uh, you need to have somebody on the back in case the attack comes from that direction. So Deacon is in the back because that's the person Seraph trusts the most back there. And to be honest, well, the thought of being anyone between him and Dina in a dangerous situation is not something he likes. For the time being, he feels better having Vincentius as close to him as possible. Because if Vincentius is lying, or a threat in some way, Seraph wants to be uh, able to deal with that in the quickest way possible. So they talked about this ahead of, you know, they would have had an opportunity to discuss this at some point. Maybe they didn't get to talk the open reasons why, but Deacon's just not, would just be like nodding like, I totally get this. I totally understand. 
So that's how party order is working at this point. Now, the tunnel, surprisingly large. It's not like a thin tunnel. It was designed with support beams and such to go on long distance because wagon loads of things would be brought underground. And as they're going in, there's a slant down. The tunnel goes down, levels off, and then comes up near Bannerhelm where they're going, right? It's meant to do that. And so it's a long, yet relatively wide, a wagon with a couple small horses or ponies, or whatever goblins use, could, could come through here with materials. So it's not a very thin tunnel. So there's times two or three of them could probably walk side by side, just to give you an idea of what the tunnel looks like. And it's very uniform, right? The tunnel looks very old. It's clearly something the goblins had been using for many years before the merge ever happened. Of course, the concern is the merge and the shaking of the world. This is a tunnel. Are they going to get to a port where it's caved in? What's going on there? They don't know. They have no recon information to go on at this point. So they just have to go forward. And Vincentius made comments that from what he learned, it's like a maze down here. There are other tunnels going to other places. Whether or not all of those are available, he doesn't, doesn't know. But this primary tunnel should keep going the same way. Vincentius, his, his option was, hey, if something happens and that's blocked off and you have to start taking side tunnels, that's where he's going to be helpful. So you don't get lost in amazing, like, hey, yeah, I know we went five lefts, three rights, and then a forward, but that way's still east. We still want to go this way. That's something he's going to be able to do. So while they're in that party order, it's not like a direct thin line. They could easily maneuver around people if they need to. If combat entered, two of them could stand beside each other and easily defend one, one way while two did the other. Not that they have that many people, but to give an example of the space they have. And again, there's wooden beams shoring it up um, and every so often, if you would, um, depending on what they're going through. And it's mostly rock that it's carved through, even more so the deeper they get. Obviously, I'm going into great details on this tunnel. <laughs> there are reasons. As they're traveling, they very quickly find that the tunnel is in disrepair, right? No one's done any maintenance on it in probably over 20 years at this point. So there are parts where maybe the merge or other land storm type things, there are parts they come to where it's slightly broken and there may have been small uh, partial cave-ins where they're having to squeeze through thin areas to get past things that fell. Or a beam is cracked and... It, because it's cracked, a bunch of rock came down and they're having to squeeze underneath this beam hoping it doesn't fall on them. All that cool stuff you can imagine. Uh, but in every situation, there's, there is enough space for them to squeeze by to then get back into a wide tunnel and keep going. Um, and so they're not having a lot of issues traveling. Sometimes they're slowed down while they squeeze through or have to maneuver stuff or Seraph may have to push or roll a big heavy rock out of the way so they can continue. Um, but the tunnel was built very sturdy, so they don't run into a lot of that give you a feel for the tunnel. Now, of course, as they're traveling, Vincentius does happen to make a comment. They're not, they don't talk a whole lot, right? Because they're listening for things. But conversation will still pop up from time to time. It gets boring wandering in the mostly darkness. And Vincentius mentions, um, it's been far too long since he's felt the comforts of the under underdark around him, even though he's nowhere near as deep as he grew up. So it's been a long time since I've felt the comforts of the underground, because it is comfortable for them, right? 
kind of that uh, opposite of claustrophobia, right? Wide open spaces, uncomfortable, underground, compact, knowing that there's a nice, comfortable bajillion tons of rock above you to protect you. Um, that's something that they deal with. It feels nice being down here where in the darkness where they would go years, if not their whole lives, without really seeing light, right? Except for mages who occasionally have to read stuff. During this, during that comment, Seraph asks, I, I hate to pry, but if I may ask, why is it that you left? I know you mentioned that there are ma much more of you than, than most people realize of Drow who have left the dark homes of their, their ancestors. Uh, what brought you to the surface? And they're walking, and there's a moment of silence. Well, Vincentius prepares his words. And he says, I never really intended to. But my path was not quite what I expected it to be. Unfortunately, I was forced to come above the surface. Dean's like, forced? And he mentions just vaguely that unfortunately, due to the murder of his father, um, to, the, to the dangers to his family and the murder of his father, he was forced to come to the surface. Um to deal with that. Seraph, of course, sincerely, I'm very sorry to hear the loss of your father. I'm sorry that you lost your home. I know that while we still have only been gone a short while, which at this point is almost close to a year since they left. Give you a heads up there, if not a little bit longer. It's been longer than that. A little bit longer than a year. It's almost been a year, a year and a quarter. It's been far too long since they've been home. And he goes, I can't imagine how you might feel. At least I know that I can go back to my home eventually you're telling us that that's not an option for you. I'm very sorry to hear of your loss there. That you were driven out, that you were driven from your home. Vincentius, you know, Seraph's walking ahead of him. He doesn't really see his face. And Vincentius, there's a pause, and he goes, "Yes, I guess you could say driven is a good choice of words to describe what I'm going through." They travel for hours. Right? Without any real issues or running into problems. They do at times come to other tunnels or other branches. But it's almost always a cross or it'd be just one, but it's always not like on an angle. It's always like a straight cross or, or, or like a like a like a four-way stop, if you will. Right? Cross of intersection. And the other tunnels, while are fair sized, they're definitely smaller. Right? Um and Sandy says they were other ways for, to get from one place to another uh, secretly that the tunnel, while the primary tunnel was designed to travel, to bring in contraband and goods, sneaking people in and out from one place to another and, uh, you know, was also a way for the goblins to make money. And you can imagine someone wants to assassinate somebody or murder somebody, you want to get away. There's a lot of opportunities where having a ways to pop in underground in the middle of the city and pop out in a different town or somewhere out in the middle of the woods would be very beneficial. They probably made a little money off that tunnel just for that usage. So they lost a lot of money when they had to close this place up. But they travel for hours without any really signs of anything alive. They don't find any plants, they don't find any bugs, nothing like that. Everything just rock and tunnel. And then after several hours of traveling, it's probably just mid to late afternoon, Mugen just can't go on any further. He tired very quickly. As I mentioned, it's the first time he's really walked. And he just gets fatigued. And they decide to make camp early, to get plenty of rest. Give him, they don't want to push him too hard. Um, they don't know 
what they may run into or they may have to run and such or they may have to fight or they may have to hide or they may just get lost and run low on supplies. They want him to have as much opportunity to heal up as they possibly can. So they decide to go ahead and set up camp. They find a, a fair spot that tunnels as good as, a ways away from any of the cross tunnels. They find a spot where they decide to make uh, a small camp. They set just a very, very small fire. The tunnel's large enough, again, that the smoke's not a huge issue. They don't leave it for long. It's just very small enough to warm up a little thing, uh, for mostly for Mugen to get something warm and healthy inside of him. And they decide to set up, uh, of course, not knowing what's down there, they, of course, set up a watch, of which Vincentius does get his turn. I have, I, now I have a little bit of reading. Vincentius sat there by the glowing embers of the small fire. He was alone awake, taking his turn at watch, but all he could do was stare at the sleeping bodies of his traveling companions. His hand rested easily on the hilt of the dagger at his belt, and the words to several different spells floated through his mind. How easy it would be, he thought. They lie there helpless, it would only take seconds, and they could all be dead. His face contorted in anger. How he hated them. His cousin was born with everything. Magic. Just give it to him. Didn't have to work for it. As well as the chance to know his father. And Seraph, his mortal enemy. He spent his whole life hating Seraph. Knowing their futures were inex and knowing that their futures were inexplic inexplicably entwined. Ooh, stumbled all over that. Seraph was powerful, of that he had no doubt. And the longer he lived, the more powerful he would become. So, literally, since he was a baby, I mean, I will say toddler, right? Elder Vincentius appears from the future. Comes to them and says, hey, I'm him, but years older. This is what's happening. This is what we need to do to make ourselves whatever this, this, and that. He arrives, so his path, from the moment he could learn, he was learning about Seraph and their futures and what he had to do to change it. Very different than Seraph, where everyone is being very careful to not change his path, right? They want him to make the right decision when this inexplicable, when this crazy day, I'm stumbling over words, say, this crazy day comes where he has to make this all-important decision that nobody knows what it is. They want him to make the right decision, the same one he did last time, is the assumption that they're under, according to Elder Deacon. That Elder Vincentius has come back from the future to try to get him to pervert or to convince him to make the wrong choice of which he would then gain. So he spent his whole life knowing his future and Sarah's future and what he was destined to live through if they fail. But still, he's sitting there with the guy in front of him asleep. Awfully tempting. Especially someone who's heard these stories but not lived through them, right? He's only heard about all the things Seraph's going to do and what's going to happen in the future. How they're destined to fight. 
Vincentius let his hands fall from the dagger and cleared the spells from his thoughts. He knew better. He'd learned from his future self that no matter what the situation, Vincentius was unable to kill Seraph. Somehow, something always intervened to make those attempts fail. His older self had been trying to kill Seraph for centuries. So I'm going to put that time, timeline in your minds there. Seraph and Vincentius have been fighting each other for hundreds of years. When Deacon came back from the future, and he said they've been fighting for hundreds of years. And nothing he can do will let him kill Seraph. He just can't do it. Something always gets in the way. Sometimes it could be luck. Sometimes it could be intervention from this person or this power or this god or whatever it is. But every plan fails. And we've even seen that. Even though when he first came back, he sent that group of people to try to... Remember the, the vampires and the skeletons that attacked the camp where um, when, when Seraph was just a baby? And that's when Tevin and Draven reappeared for the first time back after they thought they were dead? Elder Deacon said, yeah, he took a couple stabs at it just to see. Just to say that even as a baby, something won't let me kill him. Ashley says time loop. Very likely. This, this event, this day that's going to come to pass that Seraph has to choose, this choice has been set in motion by two elder gods. And now all the other gods have jumped into the game. Literally. Everything wants Seraph to get to that point. Now, what happens between him and there? That can get changed. Maybe they can change his mind or turn him into a different person by the time he gets there. But one way or another, the day will come when he has to make that choice. So even though he wants to just reach out and stab the hell out of Seraph, he knows better. Something's going to get in the way, and then they would know my intentions... What, Deacon just happens to wake up ahead of time and or I trip over Mugen by accident? What, something's going to happen to keep that from happening. Don't need to show my hand. One way or another, Seraph would live until the day he would have to make his choice. And it was Vincentius's job to help him make the right choice. The choice that would give Vincentius power unimaginable and let him rule the entire world. Patience. All good things come to those who wait. And Vincentius had all the time in the world. In the darkness, the Drowell smiled. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Now, I know you're thinking, Dravens, awfully short. We ran for just... A smidge over an hour today. A little bit shorter episode this week because what we're going to step into next time probably be a little bit longer episode than we've had um, because I've got a lot that I need to accomplish in a very short period of time. So I've got some very exciting things, I think, coming up that hopefully you will like. Definitely some more action-based stuff. Uh, But this week was going to be a bit of a shorter episode. So definitely... Vincentius is being accepted by the group. There's being careful, but they're giving him opportunities to prove that he's a friend, an ally, whatever. 
But we know from his musings that's not exactly the case. His job, as I mentioned, is to help Seraph make the right choice. Not necessarily the choice he made before. And so he's been prepared to do this by his older self since his birth. And he knows what's going to happen, right? He knew Seraph was going to be in that city. He knew he was going to be in the last city where he got involved there. He's been getting involved a couple of times. Now he's having to step in directly, which would lead us to believe that that means there's something very specific he's intending to do. And we will find out what that is very, very soon. So again, a little bit of a shorter episode this week. We just ran just an hour, but we'll have a little bit longer one in two weeks. Um, again, I would like to thank everybody for coming by and letting me tell my story. I hope you like the setup that I'm doing, right? We're setting up this new branch of the story, this new section, which is going to be a meaty one. Um, and we're going to get into a big chunk of that meat in the next episode. Uh, again, if you wouldn't mind, it would be awesome if you would consider clicking like on the stream. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe. I do D&D Merge Worlds content every other Tuesday here on YouTube, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, usually streaming for between one to two hours. It's about how long they last. Um, this week, just a little bit shorter. Um, and if you can, give us a listen or a follow over on the audios, right? Uh, iTunes, Apple, uh, Google, Spotify, Amazon, all those ones. I'm on, I'm on, Merge Worlds is on all of those. If you use any type of podcast or audio streaming uh, website, uh, if you wouldn't mind, give us a follow, you know, give a like, give a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And then come on over and join my Discord. You'll find links to all that stuff down in the area underneath the bottom of the stream as well. Okay? You're very welcome, Gorb and Miss Ashley. You were late, but you rewatch it. Okay, yeah, let me know what you think. And, uh, We'll see you again in two weeks, okay? All right, everybody. You have yourselves a wonderful day, and I'll see you again very soon.